0: KBLA Talk 1580, so excited. Yes, it's raining hard out there. It's like a whole monsoon, um, but we'll be talking shortly with Corinne Bailey Ray, God willing. (laughs) Can we just get a little break in the clouds here? Um, She's got a new album. That one right there got her Grammy. um, And uh, yeah, just really... um, one of the artists that I actually listen to a lot. So I'm looking forward to the conversation. Um, meanwhile, Byron Allen is on a tear, right? He is trying to buy uh, uh, Paramount Global, all the rest of their shares. Uh, <laughs> he bid $14.3 billion. Um, and apparently um, he is serious about that. Um, the Byron Allen Media Group and its strategic partners want to buy all of Paramount Global's outstanding shares, according to a statement released by Allen's spokesperson. This is in the Grio today. It's thirty billion total when you can cont- and when you you include debt and equity. Wow. Um, Byron Allen is more or less a force of nature in business right now. I mean, he's been um, a tough negotiating, hard-charging business person. He hasn't been afraid uh, to use the courts uh, to give him, you know, an equal playing field. Um, And I, um, yeah, I'm just... uh, consistently amazed by how audacious he is um he says he he would keep paramount's television business the streaming service and sell off some of the other things um he's got the financing lined up and ready to go um remember he was trying to get bet and that didn't happen even though he submitted a 3.5 million dollar offer along with a group there um and now he's <laughs> like, oh, you don't want to sell me BET? I'll just get the parent company of BET. That's baller. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, you know, you know, I don't think anybody needs to be a billionaire. And I think we should stop hoarding resources and we should all have uh, the basics in life that we need. <laughs> but you've got to love this. Um, remember he, remember the 10 billion, he he, try, he tried to get ABC. Um and Walt Disney said, we're not even selling. We weren't even trying to sell. Quit making us offers. Go away, black man. <laughs> I, I think, I, you know, and I remember you remember all the conspiracies and thoughts people had about um, Bill Cosby trying to get NBC, which, you know, I can't confirm or deny. I haven't done the deep d- dive and research on that. I know um, that they make it awfully hard for they being corporate America makes it awfully hard for uh, black individuals to buy media of any kind. Uh, we can start with KBLA. It's almost like you have to be a superhero. You have to be a Stevie wonder to, uh, you buy a KGLH. You have to be a Tavis Smiley to buy a KBLA 1580. Like you or I, the average black American who happened to have <laughs> millions of dollars in investors probably would have a much harder time overcoming those hurdles because, um, I mean, I've watched it, right. You know, I worked, um, for for stevie for almost 17 years and watch what it took for him to maintain that and the fact that we're blessed here in this market to have two major black owned outlets but only one black talk radio this side of the mississippi it's not a coincidence that we don't get to shape the narrative that we don't get to be in control of how our stories are told and um It's not a coincidence that these billionaires do feel that, you know what, I'll just go ahead and buy the Washington Post, the LA Times, this, that, um, which end up being sort of source material for a lot of the um, other media, whether it's online or whether it's uh, on radio, on TV. A lot of them are driven by what is written by those newspaper publishers. That's why when I see the strife, like the labor strife at the LA Times and um, the perishing of print media because um, people are getting their news from TikTok and Instagram and such. I, I feel strongly that we, the media that are not print, should be paying some kind of small royalty, like almost like a BMI or ASCAP situation to keep those newspapers afloat because we rely on them. And those tech companies should be paying a larger royalty, i.e. what Canada is uh, making Facebook do. Uh, Speaking of Mark Zuckerberg, an apology is nice. I hope those families felt happy to get that, but I'm sure, you know, they would be a lot happier to see some real action, some money invested in resources to help children, um, some real kinds of crackdowns on the on the kind of um, uh, exploitation, um, attacks, uh, the deep fakes, um, and all this stuff that that is going on online. I just find it incredibly rich that someone like Josh Hawley, all these Republicans who want to deregulate everything and let the markets, you know, the free even though it's not a free market because we have corporate welfare, they want them to just be able to do whatever they want, unregulated, but it must be a grandstanding week because they're all up there yelling at the, you know, the head of uh, TikTok and, and uh, Facebook and Instagram, which of course are owned by the same, uh, and Snap and all that, but they don't want to put regulations in place. They don't want to give the FCC meaningful um, teeth, so that they can enforce any of this stuff. They just want to get up there and say, we care about their children, um, y- your children, beat their chest, yell at the tech uh, folks, and then do nothing to make meaningful change, meaningful accountability. You are news organization. You are publishing news articles, and you're being seen as a source. So you have to have the same responsibilities uh, that, that any other news vendor has. Corinne Bailey Ray is next. She's got a new album and it is a whole journey. Pack a suitcase. That's next on KBLA talk. 1580. The station you turn to when you had it up to gear with cultural incompetence. KBLA talk. 1580. KBLA talk. 1580. I'm excited. That is from the new, new, new album. Black rainbow. Um, uh, Black Rainbow's Corinne Bailey Ray. She's a Grammy Award winner. She is a songwriter, singer, guitar player, um and you might not know this, but researcher. Um so excited to have you in the studio, Corinne Bailey Ray, welcome. Thank
1: you so much for having
0: me. Yeah, I mean, it's pouring out there. You guys were really yeah. dedicated to make it here this morning. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here yeah so you um and you and you just picked up an award you scooped up an award last night congratulations I think it's the first time they've done this uh, award uh, moving the needle focusing on women creators
1: yeah that's right it's focusing on women producers and engineers so women on the other side of the glass there are a lot of female artists but of the big songs last year you know all the records that were released last year whether they're singles or albums it was only 6% that were produced or women were credited as being producers and engineers so there's a big gap in terms of women working behind the glass and and so the organisation is supporting young people who are coming through and all the people who are doing really well you know raising their profile the The women who've mixed really high profile records this year and are going to be Grammy nominated, and so it was really good to be in that room with you know Linda Perry and Alanis Morissette and all these big Emily Lazar and all these big engineers and producers and and writers. And I won the award, the Harmonizer Award, um, which is part of the Resonator Awards. The first time they've had it this year. And you, I mean, you produced
0: on your own album, this new one.
1: Yes, I did. I was a co-producer and I, and I produce all my records. You know, I really enjoy it. I I like to be in the mix. I like to decide what happens with the instruments. I, that was always my background, you know, being in a, in a band. I always like to arrange and decide what's the bass doing, what's the guitar doing, what's the BVs doing, what are the drums doing. That to me is so much of the fun, you know, writing the song is just the start of it and it can go in so many different directions. So I really enjoy that.
0: And this is your fourth yeah this is my, album, f- right? my
1: fourth album that's right yeah
0: I mean and and so you you bust kind of busted on the scene best new artist you had the Grammy you know nominations I remember I first heard about you when I was working for Stevie Wonder at the time right. and he was just so smitten with your voice and in your your songwriting you know uh he was the one telling me to listen wow. to you so I did and I've been listening ever since. But you're not a person that, um, you're not super predictable.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And I really <laughs> like to be that way. You know, I think freedom is really important to me, musical freedom. And, you know, with my first record, I had come out of an indie guitar band. I would started working at this jazz and soul club and been introduced and reintroduced to all this amazing music and, and started to write in this different style. And so my first record was a really soulful record and then the second record was much more of a guitar based album and i just feel like with music i never want to be boxed in and there's so much i love and so much i like to do so um uh, that's important for me to just follow my my heart in those matters
0: i mean even watching you know some of the videos and stuff you you're you seem like a whimsical person
1: yeah i think so i feel really um drawn you know music it comes from that word the muse you know what inspires you what what pulls you out what draws you out and and that is my relationship with it you know I haven't ever been a sort of uh, artist that's thinking about putting out a product and staying Mm, in a lane and having a brand having a brand yeah (laughs) All, all of that stuff I feel it's so um it's so unnatural to me and also it doesn't suit me I don't feel myself to be that kind of performer I feel like I can only do it if it's real and if it's honest and you know I'm not a showbiz kind of person you know I really just like to do my my thing,
0: whatever that is, at any given time. How do you think that changes the game for you? What I mean by that, like I feel like when some people come out with a big debut and a lot of sort of hype, uh, whether it's (laughs) generated by you or not, it can put them in a position where they do feel like they have to do the same thing over and over again, or there's some huge expectation. Um, And this, um, you know, not just this album. I feel like I'm reading these articles about you, and they're always saying... She's reinvented herself again, yeah. Corinne Bell. It's like that's like the standard thing that they write about you every time. She's reinvented herself.
1: Yeah, I think eventually people <laughs> will maybe realize this is just me and that I have <laughs> these different facets to what I do. But I do agree there is a lot of pressure, you know, when you yeah. come out. I, I was overjoyed at all the focus on my first record. And it wasn't the first thing I'd made. Like you say, I was in this indie band before. We were all—it was all girls—and my boyfriend at the time. We had a record deal. It didn't work out. Our bass player had a baby when she was really young, and we were so naive. We just thought, "Oh yeah, we'll be able to carry on," and you know, it'll be cool. She'd be a bass player on stage with this bump, and we were just kind of feminist riot girls. And the label that we're signing to was not made up of feminist riot girls, and so, <laughs> so the phone stopped call, stopped ringing basically, you know. Mm. So we got this deal kind of taken like I guess it just evaporated you know I was at university at the time so I went back and finished my course and then just carried on and you know the band kind of crumbled and I carried on writing songs trying to get somewhere going to London all the time I'm from Leeds which is 200 miles north of London Um, just trying to get somewhere working with all these different producers and I ended up with this collection of songs that became my first record so we would just go to labels and I would take out my guitar and I would play like a star and I would show them my demos and either they got it or they just completely didn't get it. You know, oh. at the time there wasn't anything really that sounded like that. So no. they were trying to work it out. It's like it's soul, but it's not R&B and it's not slick, but it's but it's guitars, but it's not in like they just couldn't work it out at all. But then I found EMI, and they just, you know, really got it. And then we find some people there that we could be friends with and... It was great because I was able to, they just put some strings. We put our strings on, but that, they paid for the strings, you know. And then and then the album was finished. And then from there on, you know, it, it really took off, which I was thrilled about. And then I guess with my second record, I wanted to do something different too. And I just kept moving in, in that way.
0: Yeah. Um, you But before that, you, you sang in church and you, you know, and you studied violin. I mean, it sounds like the, the music has been part of you.
1: Yeah always I've always really loved music I played violin when I was a child you know we, at our school all the children sang and then all the children played recorder
0: and oh, then I think they, they, they do yeah, that here yeah they do I mean yeah. they don't
1: do it in England anymore but there was really. much more of a budget for arts I think when I was growing up which was so important that everyone has access to you know everyone gets to let out their musical spirit because all children are musical and, so, and I think all the kids who were, you know, doing well on the recorder, you got to choose choose which re- choose which um, instrument you wanted to play. So I got offered flute, clarinet, cello and violin. And I really liked the cello, but we didn't have a car at the time. Yeah. So the cello was going to be impossible. So I chose the mini cello, <laughs> the violin cello. And um, yeah, I used to love that, you know, carry it to school and then carry it on the, on the handlebars of my kids. Uh, on my bicycle when I used to ride to school but I loved the violin I love being in orchestras and having a small part to play learning that part not really understanding the context and then being in a group with you know 40 or 50 or 60 other children and finding my space within that that really that did a lot to me you know it made me feel at home I found my identity through music and a way of expressing myself I was a really shy kid but music and performing was the way I could kind of um,
0: feel comfortable. And uh, we just got a couple minutes before news, traffic, and sports. We'll continue on the other side, but performing is where you are now. Uh, you're actually on a tour um, and folks can come see you in LA, you're in San Francisco, you're in San Diego, you're all over the, the state of California this uh To kick off Black History Month.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so this is the next stage of the Black Rainbows tour. We started it last year and we played on the East Coast and down South. But yes, we're playing San Francisco Jazz Festival
0: and we're playing at the Performing Arts Theatres around California. At the Wallace on the 6th uh, here in Los Angeles, where we're broadcasting from on the 7th, the Observatory in San Diego. That sounds nice. Santa Cruz, the Rio Theatre on February 9th. Man, you're moving.
1: Yeah, I love it. I really do. I mean, the last tour we did, we just, you know, you get on the tour bus, you do the show, you go to sleep, you wake up in a new place. (laughs) We were just in Europe, so we toured all over Europe, you know in um, Spain and Portugal and and um, then I went to Macau and China and the Philippines as well. So How was that? It was beautiful. People are singing along? People are singing along. It yeah. was my first ever time that I've been in the Philippines, you know. So I've wanted to go there a really long time and then just to be there. And it's all these people, they're singing along in their second or third language, you know. All different people. People who knew my music when they were children who've grown up. And then people who were adults and are now, now grown. But it was amazing to meet all these Filipino young people
0: and just know that they know the record It was
1: great. Mm.
0: Yeah. We, um, we start out with um, follow you with his eyes and um, we're going to, we're going to hear more from the album. Also want to talk about it more, Um, you know, where, where you are um, with it, what, and you know, you've spoken on this, um, how it was kind of inspired by your deep dive into black history um, which Today's the first day of Black History Month. Right. So we'll look at all of that when we come forward. On uh, We're talking with Corinne Bailey Ray on KBLA Talk 1580. She's reclaiming her time on KBLA Talk 1580. More First Things First with Dominique De Prima when we come forward. KBLA Talk 1580. I love that line. <laughs> I don't argue you like this. That, did you ever imagine, I mean, this is a huge hit for you, that it would be in everybody's movie? No, I I had no idea of
1: that. I think when you write a song, you just... um with this one I feel like it really just came out of nowhere and I'd been learning these kind of more jazzy chords and that you know that's me playing guitar and I can hear I can hear like how tricky it is under my fingers you know I love you can hear the guitar neck creaking and all those things <laughs> but yeah I remember being in this house and no one else was in and just this stuff coming out or these words coming out I hadn't thought about them in, ahead of time I remember just ah, quickly write it down you know so I, it really felt like it just flowed through. But, yeah, you never know what's going to happen with a song. That's what I love about it. You don't know who's going to connect with it. You talk to people on the street. People walk down the aisle to this song or they've had their baby to this song. They've fallen out with a partner. They've met a new person you know they've had brain surgery like honestly all anything you can imagine yeah. people have told me about so i just feel it's so it's happy that the music is useful you know that's really for important
0: sure. you're one of the only artists that i can work out to their slow jams in the gym <laughs> and still lift weights like rah! wow anyway that's um, good but yeah but this new album black rainbows it, it really is i said it's a whole journey um, because there's a lot of different styles, there's a lot of different voices of you, stories, um, and you say all of this was inspired when you went to the Stony Island Arts Bank in Chicago.
1: That's right. I was on tour in Chicago, I knew about this building, and I knew about this artist, the Astor Gates, this visual artist who had saved this old bank, it's 100 years old, saved it from demolition. It was going to be pulled down, it's in the south side of Chicago, which is a a challenged area it's a economically deprived area I mean this is this is your country so I'm sure you know about the south side yeah. of Chicago right but in the middle of this place is this huge building which used to be a bank and now it's like a cathedral to black art so it has 26,000 books in which were all the books that were submitted to the Johnson Publishing Company who did Jet Magazine and Ebony Magazine so if you were a writer and you wanted to get reviewed in Jet or or Ebony you would send the books to the Johnsons so you can imagine how many books they collected and the vast array of subjects that these books were on but also they sponsored PhDs for black writers and and, uh, MAs for black writers so there's there's all this academic work then there's all the ebonies and jets that were ever made all catalogued and then upstairs in the in the building there's a collection called the Ed Williams collection which was put together by this black and Chinese banker they're um, groups of problematic objects from America's past they are derogatory anti-black objects in the main um, they're newspaper articles they're print adverts they are knickknacks, things for the home mammy jars they are photographs they are postcard they're difficult postcards they're problematic images or they are postcards uh, documenting people who've been lynched and and he would find these things in flea markets in yard sales and he would buy them to take them out of circulation right so he'd buy them and say who who wants these things in their home who who wants to show them mm. I'm gonna buy them I'm gonna put them away and so when he collected these objects, you know, more than 40,000 of these different wow. individual objects, he was throwing those, them in his home and his children were saying, Dad, this is, you know, this is too much stuff here. What are you going to do with it all? And he contacted Theaster Gates and the Rebuild Foundation and they housed those objects. So these objects that were made for sort of white amusement have been brought under black care and to see how they're treated. When you see them at first... Part of you thinks shouldn't all these be just on a bonfire somewhere, right? But of course, they are evidence of a particular kind of thinking, and they are evidence of how widespread and normal, and across the whole country and across many parts of Europe as well, this thinking was. So they're they're really really important historic artifacts, and some of them are ambiguous. You know, some some work involves black artists, drawings, and so it's all there. And then it's there's art on the wall, there's the Asta sculptures on the wall. When I went there, I saw a Nick Cave sound suit hanging up, the visual artist who wow. I love. So I went there just to look around as a tourist. When I left, all I could do was just think about all this stuff, these drawers I'd opened and these photographs. You know, who's this girl, this little black girl that's going west with this white family of pioneers in the 1850s? Who is she? What became of her? Who's this beauty queen I'm reading about? You know, I just wanted to get back into the room to read those books, to open those drawers... And um, and I did, I, I went for a residency there for two weeks and then I just continued my relationship with that over seven years, visiting the building, reading the books, being around the events, there's programming there, there's dance classes, there's yoga lessons, there's prayer meetings, there's, you know, mm. celebrations, there's huge amounts of art exhibitions. So it just for me became and sort of still is the, the centre the center of the world and a huge centre Obviously, for Black thinking, especially Chicago, with being the the number one low, uh, destination from people from the South, you know, the biggest internal migration that's ever happened in a country. So, I didn't know all that stuff about Chicago, and I know so much more about Chicago now, and just about a wider sort of um, African diaspora and experience, which obviously is my history. You know, my dad's from Saint Kitts in the Caribbean, so at the same time, the West African people were brought here they were also taken to caribbean it's the same people that brothers and sisters so i have a interest a vested interest in in that history and knowing more about the history as well your mom's english right yeah my mom is english she's from yorkshire my dad's family are from saint kitts
0: and also from antigua so mm. those two places. so what was it what was it for you as a woman and as an artist that you know that shook you or moved you about this? Because, I mean, I mean, you know, clearly you're a conscious person. You know, you know about our history. You, you went to college. You, you've you been educated. But this, something about this in particular.
1: Well, first of all, it was the volume of black literature mm. that really surprised me. So I felt like as I grew up, I, you know, I read Toni Morrison and Alice Walker and Frederick Douglass and, you know, the, the big thinkers in that world as far as, far as I was educated, Maya Angelou. And then, but there were certain questions I'd have. I'd say, "I really want to know about this," or "I really want to know about that." And people would say, whether it was teachers, whether it was people at the library or people at the bookshop, they'd say, mm, "There just isn't information about that." They'd say, <laughs> "They say just yeah, it's just been lost in the sands of time." Or they'd say, "Yeah, there was so much lack of education, so people didn't weren't literate and they didn't write their stories down." Or they'd say, "This is oral." cut this is oral history therefore wow. it, it's it's passed on but it can't be corroborated and so i just have these wow. huge ellipses in my information and then to walk into that room and see 26,000 books on specific moments in black life mostly in in america but some in the in the wider parts of the world you know a book about the black pioneers going into oklahoma between 1847 and 19 you know very 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 specific books and specific eras and to be able to go in you know that book black indians which talks about the the black families and individuals who also went into native american cultures and tribes and and so, s- just seeing all these actual photos, like here's some questions answered. Here's some photos I haven't seen, or you know, all the James Van Der Zee photos, which was actually Herbie Hancock, which drew my attention. Who drew my attention to those? And wow. he sent me a book when I did this collaboration. Who with you yeah. So yeah, just just with. sort of seeing the massive black middle class in America. That was a story I feel like hasn't been told much in Europe, where I am. So that was fascinating to me to see. What was happening um, in in segregated America, and how the black middle class really there was a prosperous seam of people. So, an Ebony magazine is a brilliant doc document of that. You know that so it's black families talking to other black families about who's the doctors, who's the lawyers, who's the judges. You know, in in 1930, who's putting on art exhibitions in the home in mm. 1940. Mm. You know, so I just wanted to see that all this stuff was happening. I felt like my image of african-american of blackness is so it's 60s based it's civil rights based it's struggle based so to see all this glamour and beauty and education it was really a just a sort of bathing you know in in all of this i just Mm -hmm. wanted to see more of it
0: corinne bailey ray is my guest let's um give me an example of a song that just directly connected to one of these stories or um well, there were, I mean,
1: every single song on the record is inspired by <laughs> an object right. or an event in the Arts Bank. But I can think specifically of... Um a song that I wrote about Harriet Jacobs. Oh, yeah. I I love Harriet Jacobs' story, and I knew of that story. And I have two American aunts. So My dad's got four sisters, and, and two of them came here and lived in New Jersey from the 80s. So they would send us stuff, you know, they would send us barrettes for our hair, and they would send us books with people in who looked like us, which was, you know, me and my two sisters. That was hard to find in England in the 80s. Uh, or they would send us Kool-Aid you know, they would send us American stuff and I remember when I was a teenager my aunt sent me this book on early African American classics and it was Bois and, and Frederick Douglass and James Weldon Johnson but there was Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs and I read that first because that was the only story by a woman and I was really struck by this sort of understanding and knowledge of enslavement from inside out you know this young yeah. girl who doesn't have any concept that she is an enslaved child until she's about 6 years old and her parents die you know the idea that that's how it will have been for every single person who who was born into this into this system at first you're a baby you can't be used to anyone when you're a baby right but then as you get older the realization as it is in this book the realization that your parents aren't the only authority around you and that you find yourself in this system and to have that have the kind of internal knowledge and understanding of a of a person a human being in this system so i always have clung to harriet jacob's story because she has she wears her humanity so deeply and she has this master this person who's in authority over her and he is a violent and dangerous man, and at one point, um, she has some children. Harriet Jacobs has two children with a white man who becomes a um, very well-known politician. But so she has these two children, and this man who believes himself to be in love with her, he hurts, harms one of the children at one point. And the the boy's in a coma, and Harriet Jacobs realizes she is in grave danger. Her children are in grave danger, but she knows if she runs north, that he'll find her, and he'll bring her back because he believes himself to be in love with her and has this obsessional, abusive relationship with her. So she decides on a plan. And one morning, everyone wakes up on the plantation. She's not there. This is in North Carolina and Edenton. And um, they think that she's gone north and they look all around for her and they can't find her anywhere. But she hasn't gone north. She's hiding out in the crawl space above her free grandmother's storehouse her grandmother helps her in this plan it's a tiny space she can't stand up in it she has to lie down it's freezing cold in the winter time and boiling hot in the summertime and it's a wooden house so she's able to bore this tiny hole inside of the building that's not big enough for so people can see her but it's enough light that she can see out she can sew by it and she looks through that window this tiny space and watches her children growing up Mm -hmm. she stays there till the coast is clear and she stays in that space for seven years that's
0: yeah that's such a powerful story the song is
1: the song well one day i was lying in my bed and i was thinking about what the sunset looked like for harriet jacobs right through this tiny porthole and then how wide and how vast it must have seemed when she eventually found her freedom and went north and became an abolitionist and sent for her children. So the song is called Peach Velvet Sky.
0: Peach Velvet Sky. Can you play that one, Miles? Peach Velvet Sky. It's a beautiful song and um, a story well told. Thank you. Happy I was always like really struck. Markille. I was struck by her story. It's a, it's an incredible story. Yeah. Talking with Corinne Bailey Ray.
1: This is KBLA Talk 1580, where hate meets a scholarly match. Hey.
0: Hey. Uh, talking with Corinne Bailey Ray, who happens to be one of uh, my favorite artists. I mean, I'm really, really um, I'm happy, so grateful that you came into the studio. So are the folks in the chat room. You're getting a lot of love and uh, a lot of kudos uh, for coming and supporting KBLA and, and the work that you've done i mean this was seven years from the time you hit this museum space to well really i guess six years because your album came out september 2023 right? right and 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 all of this is processed and comes out the other side as music
1: yeah, I mean, I think it takes me a long time to make records for many reasons, I guess. that, But one of them is that I really, really love doing it. And with this record, <laughs> you know, I want it to go back. I want it to explore. And one thing led me to another. So at one point, I was reading Ebony magazine from 1953. So they put all the Ebony's together. And everything's treated with so much care and elevation. So all the ebony magazines, you know, they're bound in leather and it's gold embossed up the side. So I reached for 1953. And opened it up and saw this incredible seventeen-year-old beauty queen who was hanging off this black woman hanging off the back of a fire engine, in fireman's boots and uh, and a bathing suit. And I just thought, who is this woman? And she had this like, kind of smile to her. She just looked like this kind of hellraiser, you know. <laughs> and I thought, well, who is she? And um, I saw that she was called Audrey Smoltz. And I thought, just out of interest, let me research this person. And I typed her name in to Google. And it was very, very easy to find her because she'd remained a person in the public eye right right up to now. She's in her eighties now, Audrey Smoltz. Wow. But she had gone on to be the announcer for the Ebony Fashion Fair. So when Ebony Fashion Fair would take to the stage, there would be a woman who would say, you know, he is wearing a three piece green vented <laughs> velvet <laughs> suit for spring, you know, and it would be her it would be Audrey Smoltz. And they had a little band that would go and play, you know, a three piece band. And I loved to that mrs johnson at this particular moment in history when people are saying there's so much happening with black people and you're flying to paris to buy couture to bring it back to put on these shows and she said it's important for people to be able to see themselves on this stage they also raised millions of dollars for the historically black universities and colleges but i just i love that perspective that you know Housing was important and food is important and voters' rights are important. But also freaking fur and and long gloves and style (laughs) and self-empowerment and elegance were really important. And the queues would be around the blocks of these black maids who were impeccably dressed Mm. who wanted to go and see these models parade down the catwalk and then they might buy you know a lipstick or a powder puff and they would be there in their fur coats that they had worked hard to buy and i and i really the dignity of Mm. black people and especially you know black women and black women in labor you know that so many people in my family are you know have done that 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 factory work that how you know working in a home that was my, my great mother, grandmother's work was she was away from St. Kitts and went to work in another part of the Caribbean in someone's home, you know, to to look after their their space. And so I, th- I think about these women who make these big decisions and still have this real dignified and core, you know, to me, that's so, that's so much of what blackness is to me. And that's so much of what I what I receive, you know, it's like carriage understanding,
0: depth, deportment, elegance, glamour. Well, I mean, I, 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 one of the reasons I laughed was because I saw you playing guitar in some culottes <laughs> and I was like, yeah. you know, that's exactly what you're talking about, right? Yeah, so it was that <laughs> song, but when I saw that image, you know, that
1: kind of 50s image, uh-huh. it really reminded me of the Riot Girl posters of the 90s, mm. you know? So I would see, I mean, I guess the main attraction to me was that I had seen loads of images like this, but never of a black woman, mm. right? So I might have seen Betty Page and a tiger right, thing right. or... You know all these cheesecake kind of '50s images, but I'd never seen it with a black woman before, and it really reminded me of these '90s indie posters, which would be then subverting the '50s imagery. You right. know, it might be a '50s woman washing a plate, looking forlorn, and it would say, like, "Forget the dishes, come out tonight and see," you know, "this wild band at right. 9 p.m." And so, as soon as I saw it, I just got into that New York Transit Queen, New York Transit Queen. Yeah, we played
0: yeah. that earlier. It's so fun. Oh, thank you. Um, so, I. Uh, uh, time flies really fast when you're on the radio we got about a minute left Gosh. i hope pe- people will pick up black rainbows it's really it really is a whole journey there's jazz there's rock punk
1: yeah all, so, all sorts yeah and yeah. funk you know we've got this track black rainbows you can play a little bit of that but I really wanted to explore sort of squelchy funk it's so instrumental so we can talk right over it but <laughs> yeah I really I really liked the idea of being free you know when they started it was a side project I thought I'm not going to put it under my name because I don't want to I'm already going along and people know who I am and I thought after a while, I thought, well, actually, this is who I am. This is another aspect of who I am. And I think it's really important as artists and especially as black artists to sort of um, unshackle from that kind of uh, commercial and branding of self. You know, non, no artists are objects. No artists are commercial packages. Every artist is free. I think modeling freedom is the most important thing to do as a music maker.
0: I love that. No artists are packages. Well, I thank you so much for coming in. This is um, Black Rainbows right here. And uh, I hope folks will, I'll be there at the Wallace. I'm going to come see you. Yeah, so I hope folks will come out to see you. Thank you so much for being with us.
1: Thank you.